Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Well, later this year, we're going to mark a pretty significant anniversary. 50 years since this. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab work spell. Here's another shot. Right by the door. So not just a a defining sports moment of the 20th century for this country, just a defining moment, period. That 1972 Summit Series was massive. And I mean, we're a hockey country. And, you know, so obviously that brings some additional significance. But the politics of it all, the Cold War backdrop of it all, it was hugely significant and consequential. There's going to be a lot of interesting uh, reflecting on all of that uh, coming up later this year. Well, someone who had a front row seat to all of this, not just the games. I mean, we all know the games. We all know the outcome. But the intrigue, how this all came about in the first place, how it almost went sideways uh, in many different ways, uh, is Gary Smith. Gary Smith was a young diplomat posted in Moscow in the early 1970s, was instrumental in making this series happen. He writes about it in his new book. It's called Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics at the 1972 Summit Series. Gary Smith joins us on the line here this afternoon. Great to have you with us here, Gary. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much, Rob. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's such a fascinating look at the other side of all of this, the side that that none of us really saw what led up to this, why both sides wanted uh, this to happen and, and how it all came about. But in terms of, you know, sitting down and telling your side of the story and also doing, you know, some research and some interviews, was it the anniversary that was kind of tugging at you or, or why did you feel the time was right to tell your story? Well, certainly the 50th anniversary was seminal, but, you know, Rob, the 40 or 50 books have been written about this series mm-hmm. and none of them really got down to the diplomatic side of it, the politics behind it, the scene setting. The hockey games themselves just didn't fall from the sky. And I had gone back to Moscow with some Team Canada members in 2017, and I thought, there's a good part of this whole story about the Summit Series uh, that hasn't been told. And as you mentioned, I had a front row seat to it. And I thought, you know, I should do this before too much uh, time passes along because I'm getting older just like the players. So I set about writing it down. Well, I'm sure much of this is, is ingrained in your memory anyway, but let's set the stage. So it was, um, I think, 1971. So the year before is when you arrived in, in Moscow, right? Do I have that right? That's correct. Uh, when I went to Moscow in February of 1971, Canada had withdrawn from all international hockey you know, the last uh, Winter Olympics we won was uh, way back in 1952, and the last World Championships was in 1961 when the Trail Smoke Eaters uh, won the World Championships. And we were being beaten by the Americans, but particularly by the Russians. And everyone in Canada was very upset about this. You know, hockey is our sport, our birthright, and yet we couldn't field our best uh, players and the best players were professionals with the NHL. But the rules of the World Hockey Association and the Olympics were that you could only have amateurs. And I think we knew that 
the Soviets weren't amateurs. They were playing uh, under the guise of being in the army or the military. So when I went to Moscow uh, in February 1971, there was no hockey between Canada and the Soviet Union except for an embassy hockey team called the Moscow Maple Leafs. And you were on that. You were a defenseman over, on that team. I brought my skates with me and yeah. uh, became a player on the team. And then Prime Minister Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, Justin's father, came to Moscow in May 1971 trying to ease tensions between Canada and the Soviet Union. And he thought that we needed to find some common ground to prevent a war breaking out. And what better common ground between Canada and the Soviet Union or Russia than hockey? Yeah, which is kind of how you got involved. But, you know, it's interesting, too, the way you paint the picture of what it was like. I mean, you're in your late 20s. Uh, here you are in the midst of the Cold War, plunked down in Moscow, um, you know, a, a stressful situation, one that lends itself to paranoia. You're being watched, you're being followed, uh, you know, the, the point about the, the swallows, as they're called, as, you know, they're, they're trying to seduce, um, you know, potential uh, agents. Like, all of that Cold War intrigue, and, and that's what, what you were plunked down into. I mean, what was that like, first of all? Well, it was a pressure cooker. Just think, uh, I had been well prepared, though, my wife as well, uh, which was very important. We spent a whole year learning Russian language before we got there. We had a lot of briefings. So when we got to Moscow, uh, I knew that the KGB would be after us because we were Russian speakers and because uh, we were from a NATO country. They paid particular attention to us. But if you know what's coming you can sort of get ready for it. If you know they're going to try and bribe you with money or they're going to throw uh, sex at you or love or come at you with ideology, you get ready for that. And that helps uh, prepare you to uh, stand your ground and not go over to the other side, as they say in the uh, espionage world. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's interesting, as you say, so so the seeds for this are being planted. Um, you know, Pierre Trudeau sees some some benefit in this. The Soviets start to see some some benefit in this. Uh, and so at the same time as there's all this momentum building and it feels like there's an inevitability to it. At the same time, it almost seems like there's so many steps along the way, so many points along the way at which it can crumble. Uh, the Soviets and Canadians disagree on things. Even the different Canadian factions disagree on different things. Soviet factions disagree on different things. In a way, it's almost a miracle that it came together. Well, in a sense, it was. Uh, as you say, there was disagreements on the Canadian side uh, between Hockey Canada, the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, the NHL, and the NHL Players Association. And one of the biggest problems was that the World Hockey Association was getting started at the same time. Right. So there was a huge dispute about who was going to play for Canada. You know, once we got the thing rolling, then who was going to play for Canada? And the, uh, the big case was Bobby Hull. Bobby Hull had just signed a million-dollar contract with the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association. And Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL, said, the only ones who are going to play for Team Canada are those with a signed NHL contract. So that excluded Bobby Hull. And Canadians across the country said, what the hell? Uh, you know, we, we're trying to field our best players here to go against the Russians. And yet Bobby Hull is one of the best and he can't play. And Jerry Cheevers and J.C. Trombley and so on. So getting that sorted out was a major problem. And then on the Soviet side, 
they wanted to play, but they didn't want to lose their uh, ability to win the Olympics and the World Championships because mm-hmm. that was a big element for them. They were pounding their chests that they were the world's best. So getting that around, what we, what we worked out was it was going to be an exhibition series, what was called a friendship series. We were going to have four games in Canada. Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, and four games in Moscow. And we were going to see who was best of the best. And it's interesting, you write about, you know, basically it was the Soviet number two leader at the time, uh, came to Canada in the fall of 71, attended an NHL game in Vancouver, and maybe that kind of cinched it from a Soviet perspective, that there was some value in this. What did they hope to get out of it, though? Well, I think you have to look at the, uh, go into the stratosphere of international politics. Um, the Soviet Union and China at that time were enemies. They were fighting uh, battles on the Usuri River. And President Richard Nixon used ping pong diplomacy to make an overture toward China. And all of a sudden, the Russians saw the Americans and the Chinese ganging up on them. So they thought, well, how are we going to deal with this? And here was Canada. Um, we had American technology, and we were interested in easing world tension. So the Soviets put their spotlight on Canada, and they sent over Alexei Kosygin. But, you know, he, he had demonstrations everywhere he went in Canada. On Parliament Hill, somebody jumped on his back. A Hungarian-Canadian jumped on his back. And one journalist said he rode the premier like a horse. And so there were demonstrations from Ukrainians, Poles, uh, Hungarians, Balts, and members of the Canadian Jewish uh, Society who were unhappy about uh, the situation of uh, Jews in the Soviet Union being unable to leave for Israel. So wherever Consegan went, in, in Montreal, in Toronto, in Edmonton, in Vancouver, he had all these demonstrations until uh, it was decided we offered him up an NHL game. And he didn't want to go at first. He said, I don't want to be booed one more time by a crowd of 16,000. But we got him to the arena, and lo and behold, the Vancouver uh, hockey crowd received him with a warm welcome. Henri Richard, the captain of the Montreal Canadiens, was at center ice, and Orland Kurtenbacher of the Vancouver Canucks presented him with a hockey stick. And the Soviet flag flew for the very first time in an NHL rink. And at that moment, the light went on for Kasig and said, hey, the way to get on a good side with Canadians and to improve our relationships is not politics or trade, but it's through hockey. And uh, after that, there was an agreement signed between the two sides to exchange people. And I was involved in that. And we included a reference to sportsmen. There was going to be an exchange of sportsmen. And that helped set the table at the highest level between Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Alexei Kosygin, and the Soviet communist boss, uh, Leonid Brezhnev. So once we got agreement at the top, then we could get down to business about working out various details. What do the Americans think about all of this? Well, that was an interesting thing. Um, what happened, uh, at first, the Americans were quite unhappy with Pierre Trudeau. They thought he was soft on communism, uh, that he was uh, getting out ahead of everyone else in NATO. But lo and behold, one year after Pierre Trudeau went to Moscow in May 1971, in May 1972, who shows up in Moscow than none other than Richard Nixon? 
and he signed some very important arms control agreements on offensive and defensive missiles. So at the time, they uh, they thought we were pro-communist, but uh, they followed suit. They found that it was in their own strategic interest to engage the Soviet Union and, and have some arms control agreements. And, you know, all of this has some bearing on what's going on today with uh, Ukraine. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and when when you look at your responsibility and other diplomats in, in Moscow, if there were ever Canadians visiting Moscow, I'm sure was something that maybe, you know, you guys were aware of. There was a large contingent of, of Canadians. So once this series is, is a go, and now we've got the prospect of literally thousands of Canadians coming to Moscow to watch these games, what was that like? Well, that was unprecedented. Don't forget that uh, the Soviet Union was closed, in effect. They controlled who came in there, and they particularly controlled uh, the exit of Soviet citizens. You couldn't leave the Soviet Union without an exit permit. So the Soviet team had come to Canada with no fans, no family members, and then we go back to Moscow in uh, the latter part of September 1972, got hundreds of journalists from Canada, and we've got the players and their families and friends, and we've got about 2,800 to 3,000 Canadian fans. And they all thought this was going to be the Grey Cup game, you know, <laughs> like uh, the Calgary fans who rode horses in the lobby of the uh, Royal York in Toronto. So we knew there was going to be trouble. We knew that vodka could be purchased for 90 cents a bottle. Uh, and the fans were ready to party. So the most important thing for us, aside from making sure everyone had tickets and hotel space, the most important thing for us was to work out an arrangement to make sure that the Soviet police did not jail a whole bunch of Canadians. And we got their agreement that they were going to look the other way and go easy. But one Canadian fan broke up a bar at five in the morning and got into a, a big Donnybrook with a Soviet security official, and he was thrown in jail, and they threatened to send him to Siberia for five years of hard labor. And it was only through the intervention of the embassy that we got him out, and we even got him to see the final game. He, we had to give the Soviet uh, police four tickets <laughs> to escort him to the game. They had two uh, policemen on one side of them and two on the other. But eventually we got him out, and uh, he got on the plane and returned home to Canada. But it was a major, major effort to uh, look after all those fans. And they were cheering and cheering and cheering, and I think that they made a huge difference in helping Team Canada get back uh, into winning ways. Uh, and, of course, once the team was there, once all the fans were there, those last few games, and you talk about all of the drama, some stuff we didn't know about, like Phil Esposito had to be taken to a hospital in Moscow. That was after, I think, Game 5, right? That's after Game 5, yes. That was an interesting affair because um, I had gone with the Soviet team to Canada for the games there and then was looking after Team Canada in Moscow. And after Game 5, uh, the next morning, Harry Sinden, the coach, says, Hey, Gary, uh, Phil's woken up and he was coughing up blood all night. We need you, you to take him to a Soviet hospital for some x-rays. All right. But then he said, Don't tell anybody. I said, Well, what, who do you mean? He says, Well, don't tell the other players. Okay. Don't tell the press, okay? 
I said, what about the team doctor? Don't tell him either. And I said, well, what about the Soviets? Don't tell them. So how was I going to get him to a Soviet hospital without telling anybody? And it worked out that uh, we had a doctor in Moscow that looked after our issues, and that was a British doctor at the British Embassy, and we had given him tickets to Game 5. So I was able to call him up. He owed us a favor, so to speak, and I told him the situation. He said, I'll put a call into a uh, x-ray department I know at a Soviet hospital. So I had an embassy car and driver, and I took Phil to be x-rayed. And uh, Phil Esposito is a big guy, and um, he's got a very large chest, and I must say that it's a pretty hairy chest. (laughs) And when it came time to roll out the x-ray machine, they had to extend it sideways and upwards to accommodate him and the Soviet nurses were giggling and so on and the doctor came and said uh, I looked at it no you don't have any problem here Phil but what you do have is an enormous chest cavity and he said people who have an enormous chest cavity have a great endurance and Phil Esposito certainly had endurance so nobody knew about that and uh, until you know I've written about it now Phil yeah. kept it quiet himself. Well, and I mean, you know, we, we know about uh, the dispute over the referees. We know about, obviously, the Alan Eagle incident. You had a perspective on all of that. I mean, all this drama around that, that you know, that, that ultimate game, that eighth and final game, I mean, that almost didn't happen or almost got disrupted. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost something that they managed to get through that, that final game, as, as dramatic as it turned out to be. Well, there were a lot of arguments about the referees, and particularly two West German referees that Harry Sinden felt were incompetent. And uh, he insisted that they not referee the final game. And the Soviets insisted that they referee. And we thought that they were in the Soviets' pocket and that would be calling all sorts of unnecessary penalties on Team Canada. And Alan Eagleson, at one point when we were talking about this, said, well, if they go on the ice, we're not going to play. We're going to just pack up and we're going to go home and the series is going to be off and there'll be no final game. And, you know, I passed the word along to my ambassador and Canadian minister was visiting. How could we, we would work so long to have this series go forward, the final game. How could we pull out? It would be a real, real problem. And moreover, we had all these fans who had already gone to the circus and the theater and so on, and they were getting frustrated. Ten days in Moscow were tough, and I knew that if the Game 8 didn't happen and the fans were there with the 90-cent bottle of vodka, that we would have big trouble. So (laughs) I made a proposal that we each choose one referee, and... Uh, that seemed to solve the problem for a couple of minutes until uh, Harry Sinden says, all right, we'll take the Swede. And the Russians sort of started smiling and said, well, that's nice, but he's sick. <laughs> yeah. And we it's said, what do you mean yes. sick? We just saw him for breakfast. Well, he's sick now. And we knew that was a political illness. Anyway, we took the uh, referee from Czechoslovakia, and they took uh, one of the, the worst uh, West German referees. And it was a problem at first. Uh, um, Jean-Paul Parise had had an incident with one of the referees who had called three quick penalties on Canada, but that came and went, and that referee put his uh, whistle away, and the game went on, and I think uh, everyone knows that 
we had to win that last game to win the series. And at the end of the second period, uh, we were down five to three. So we needed to score three goals in the last period and prevent the Soviets from getting any more goals. And I tell the story in the book about a Russian ballerina who came to see Phil, Phil Esposito and wished him the very best. He had seen her dance the night before and had jumped up in the seat and yelled out and bravo and so on. So she came to see him and wished him the well. And, and Phil played uh, like Hercules on, on skates for that last <laughs> period. Yeah. He was involved in all three goals. And uh, Team Canada won with, uh, as we know, 34 seconds to go on Paul Henderson's goal. And the Russian cultural community blamed that ballerina for the Soviets' loss. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, the legacy obviously speaks for itself, but such a remarkable look at how this all came about. It's called Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics at the 1972 Summit Series. Gary Smith, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. You're welcome, Rob. All the best. Bye. All right, there you go. Someone who's got all kinds of stories. That was a fun conversation. Gary J. Smith, the book is called Ice War Diplomat. We're back to wrap things up right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.